0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In South Korea, Taiwan, and Ukraine, the U.S. ratchets up the Cold War 2.0. I speak to historian Gerald Horne.
1: This is a reflection, once again, of the delirium that apparently is descending in the White House and in the State Department. It's a major threat to international peace and security.
0: And though the U.S. and allies bellow about democracy, the inconvenient truths about slavery, colonialism, and genocide are ever present. Journalist Juan Gonzalez gives a major address about the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine.
2: If the United States is today the world's richest nation, It is in part because of the sweat and blood of copper workers of Chile, the tin miners of Bolivia, the fruit pickers of Guatemala and Honduras, the cane cutters of Cuba, the oil workers of Venezuela and Mexico, the pharmaceutical workers of Puerto Rico, the ranch hands of Costa Rica and Argentina, the West Indians who died building the Panama Canal and the Panamanians who maintained it.
0: All this and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Everm. Well, two reports released Thursday offer new revelations about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife Jenny receiving substantial income from wealthy right-wing activists and funders. Politico reported that the billionaire Harlan Crowe, who collects Nazi memorabilia, paid for Thomas's grandnephew to attend two private schools and the amount paid could be up to $150,000. Also, the Washington Post reported that Leonard Leo, former vice president of the Federalist Society, which basically selects far-right judges to be appointed by Republican lawmakers, arranged for Jenny Thomas to be paid at least $80,000 as a consultant in 2012 and asked that she not be identified as the recipient of those funds. These two reports offer just the latest examples of the Thomases receiving lavish gifts, trips and cash and failing to disclose it in violation of federal ethics rules. The Thomas gravy train isn't the only ethical lapse on the Supreme Court, according to Political Justice Neil Gorsuch and his business partners, sold a 40 acre Colorado ranch for nearly two million dollars to Brian Duffy CEO of a law firm that has since been involved in 22 cases before the court. Gorsuch did not recuse himself in those cases, and Thomas has not recused himself from cases that have benefited Crow. As an example, The Lever reported that Thomas voted to end the COVID-era federal eviction moratorium after Crow's company described the policy as a threat to its quote-unquote profit margins. And there is more in Washington that reeks of government corruption and hypocrisy that was called out this week by Code Pink Women for Peace. As Secretary of State Antony Blinken hosted an event here on May 3rd for World Press Freedom Day, he was interrupted by Medea Benjamin and Ty Berry of Code Pink, who called out Blinken for the continued imprisonment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and the failure to hold Israel Accountable for the Murder of Al Jazeera Journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. The next day, the Wilson Center think tank was hosting former fake president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, for a forum titled The Battle for Democracy in Venezuela. At the event, a number of Code Pink protesters stood up and began reminding the audience that the unelected puppet, Guaido, facilitated the pillaging of Venezuela's public assets.
2: Guaido no, is, is a thief. Guaido is a thief. He's stealing the people's money. Guaido is a thief and a fraud. Yeah, is a thief and fraud. A, you're you're fraud. a fraud. Guaido is a thief and a fraud
0: and a is a thief and a fraud. Thefts from the Venezuelan people included seizure in the United States of the Citgo Petroleum Company, the pillaging of a multi-million-dollar fertilizer company in Colombia the theft of 31 billion tons of gold by the Bank of England, and the takeover and vandalizing of Venezuela's embassy here in Washington, (music) D.C. And finally, in culture and media, as Charles III is officially coronated king of the British monarchy, 12 member states of the British Commonwealth are calling on him to apologize and give reparations for slavery, colonialism, and genocide. Advocacy groups in 12 countries where Charles is king released a joint statement Wednesday. It reads in part, quote, We, the undersigned, call on the British monarch, King Charles III, on the date of his coronation being May 6, 2023, to acknowledge the horrific impacts on and legacy of genocide and colonization on the indigenous and enslaved peoples of Antigua and Barbuda, New Zealand, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Our collective indigenous rights organizations, among other organizations who are working to help our communities recover from centuries of racism, oppression, colonialism, and slavery, now rightly recognized by the United Nations as Crimes Against Humanity, also, call for a formal apology and for a process of reparatory justice to commence. End quote. The groups also call for the quote, return of all our cultural treasures and artifacts stolen from our peoples throughout the hundreds of years of genocide, enslavement, discrimination, massacre, and racial discrimination by the authorities empowered by the protection of the British Crown, and the repatriation of all remains of our collective peoples. That reside in UK museums and institutions, and that represent our family histories, genealogies, cultural history, and spiritual ancestry. End quote. In some speeches, Charles has acknowledged the royal family's role in colonization, but has not issued any apology or commitment to action. Beginning in the 16th century to its height in the 1920s, the British Empire, headed by the monarch, ruled over more than 450 million people. Over nearly a quarter of the globe, millions of people were killed or severely harmed by the invasion of their traditional lands, the enslavement and rape of people and the destruction of families, communities and cultures. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. And I normally say his most recent book is, but his newest book is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C. from 1900 to the year 2000. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we have a lot to cover, and I hope that we can get through it in the short amount of time we have. But there's just some big things happening on the the grand global scale that really aren't connected in terms of connecting the dots by corporate media. So just in the past couple of weeks... I've read a story about the US docking nuclear submarines, reintroducing nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula in South Korea. And then the US backed Taiwanese military conducting war games against China. Then we have Iran saying that it forced a US nuclear submarine to surface. And the US claims that the incident did not happen. But that's another nuclear submarine out there circling the globe. And then we have this really disturbing attack, uh, what Russia says is a drone attack, targeting the Kremlin and perhaps the residents of the their president, Vladimir Putin, and the U.S. denying that as well. And so did the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. So all these incidents put together, if you connect those dots, seems like a real ratcheting up of provocations, tensions around the globe by the U.S.
1: Well, you are correct, particularly the latter. The latter story in particular, the drone attack on the Kremlin, where it was thought Mr. Putin was spending the night, the attack took place at 2.30 in the morning Moscow time. It really shocks the conscience. Uh, Imagine what would happen if an ally of Moscow launched a drone attack against the White House, for example. When you had the attacks of September 11, 2001 on the Pentagon, for example, we saw the United States strike out blindly, attacking Iraq, even though it had nothing to do with that particular attack on the Pentagon. The United States is ratcheting up tensions all over the world. I think it's a reaction to the fact that de-dollarization, the fact that the dollar as a medium of international trade is declining. It's a reflection of the arising of a multipolar world, particularly the rise of China, which brings us to the visit of President Yoon of South Korea to the White House. The red carpet was rolled out. He basically stuck to U.S. talking points with regard to Taiwan, Uh, this is even more dangerous because not only did he thumb his nose at South Korea's major trading partner speaking of China, uh, but as well, he issued provocative words, as did Mr. Biden, about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, a regime you do not want to trifle with, not least because it has a formidable military capability and uh, this is a reflection once again of the delirium that apparently is descending
0: uh,
1: in the white house and in the state department it's a major threat to international peace and security
0: i was also curious about one story you mentioned the state department just then and Certainly, uh, Anthony Blinken is the Secretary of State. And I saw a story recently commenting how the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, is actually seeming to play more of a role as a Secretary of State. She's on Sunday cable news. Uh, She's talking about, um, you know, sanctions. She's talking about really issues of diplomacy or the lack thereof. Uh, taking the role of the Warhawk, perhaps updating the the role filled by you know Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright, and in a sense that I've never seen a Treasury Secretary take that type of role.
1: I think part of it is the political difficulty Secretary of State Blinken has found himself in. After all, he's been directly implicated in the cover up of all of the transgressions of the president's son, Hunter Biden. Uh, that's I'm afraid to say, will be exploding sooner rather than later. And as well, Secretary Yellen has been designated to walk back some of the more provocative rhetoric with regard to China. Uh, The United States' trade relation with China continues to blossom, despite the fact that we're now in Cold War 2.0. And it was Secretary Yellen who was designated to speak at Johns Hopkins campus in Washington, DC, where she walked back this rather wild eyed idea that the United States would decouple from the Chinese economy, uh, which is difficult, if not impossible. And the new buzzword is de-risk, which by the way, the European commission president, Ursula von der Leyen helped to introduce. So, Perhaps, given the overheated rhetoric coming out of the White House and the State Department, the fact that Secretary Yellen is speaking out more in foreign policy in the context of the center-right politics of Washington might be a step forward.
0: We've talked about the information war, the war of words throughout this conflict in Ukraine, and it's a technique and an information war that keeps on giving. So, We didn't really talk a lot about the the leaks from the the so-called Pentagon leaks, but those leaks seem to indicate that the U.S. had a policy of reversing the number of casualties uh, in Ukraine and suffered by Russia in terms of always attributing the larger number to Russia when they said that really the larger number was suffered by Ukraine and just this week i noticed that the white house you know not not the pentagon not you know any other you know kind of military uh, brass but the the white house said that you know the russia has suffered 100,000 casualties like like in recent months and it just flies in the face of everything that we understand that's happening in bakhmut and all these other reports that we do get from the front But it's amazing to me that at this point, this information war is still ongoing so fiercely. And it's now a war of of casualties. You know, who can say who has suffered the most and who who has the most deaths, which is really pretty grisly.
1: Well, I wish the corporate media had paid more attention to the revelations in the latest Pentagon Papers document dump. Instead, they focused upon the personality of the accused leaker, the young man from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And even if one focuses on him, they could have teased out the point, the linked point, that the U.S. military is having enormous difficulty in meeting its recruiting goals. I guess our young men and women uh, do not want to take a job where they have to dodge bullets. And therefore, Washington has to dig ever more deeply in the barrel to come up Mm. with people like Mystic Teixeira, who apparently has uh, extreme right-wing politics amongst uh, other uh, debilities. And even in terms of the revelations, uh, perhaps there was little shock or surprise that the United States spies on its allies. After all, uh, during the Obama years, we discovered That the United States was hacking into the mobile phone of Chancellor Angela Merkel of Berlin. But still, I don't think we should be that jaded where we glide past the idea that the United States is not only uh, stoking up tensions with uh, supposed antagonists, but even stoking up tensions with supposed allies, which shows you what a danger this present regime is.
0: Switching to some domestic news. I was really taken by an article in this this particular article. I think it's an Associated Press article, but it was published in, uh, in one of the uh, local Minneapolis newspapers. But on Thursday, a man suspected, and I'm reading from the article, a man suspected of setting fires to Minneapolis mosques and vandalizing the office of U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar was indicted on federal charges of arson and damage to religious property. And it's accompanied by a photo of the damage uh, inside Masjid al-Rama Mosque in Minneapolis. And the caption says the suspect, Jackie Rahm Little, was also accused of a series of acts of vandalism in January, including to a police vehicle assigned to a Somali officer, a shopping center known as the Somali Mall, and the Minneapolis District Office of Congressional Representative. And that's Representative Ilhan Omar. And that's according to an affidavit filed in the U.S. District Court in Minneapolis. So I was struck by this story because I saw, I first saw it on social media and the commentary with the post was that, you know, this should be bigger news. This should be national news. And we're entering a a point of such violence and barbarism in this country in terms of of these mass shootings that you know arson and destroying property i guess pales in comparison you know except for when they want to blame black lives matter activists for looting and burning even when they had nothing to do with it you know but but this is a case where supposed arson alleged arson is is just not even at the top of the news well the
1: situation may be even more grim than that rather disturbing story you've just reported. I'm referring to the fact that with regard to crime in this country, you have a system where you have prosecutors. However, almost under the radar, there has been a systematic effort to remove left-leaning prosecutors from office. I'm thinking of a chase of Boudin in San Francisco who was removed from office I'm thinking of Kim Gardner, a black woman in St. Louis, St. Louis County, who was just Mm -hmm. forced out of office within the last 24 hours. I'm Mm. thinking of the attack on Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, who's brought the charges against uh, Mr. Trump. He has not been forced out of office, but certainly he's been subjected to all manner of threats. And I'm also thinking of the ongoing attempt to remove the prosecutor in Los Angeles, speaking of George Gascon, uh, who was catapulted into office, not least because he broken an alliance with local Black Lives Matter activists. But that attempt to remove prosecutors is also accompanied by an s- attempt to remove legislators.
0: Before you go to the legislators also, I'm thinking of the prosecutor in Fulton County in Georgia, where the state legislature has actually proposed some laws targeting what they call rogue prosecutors.
1: Well, certainly Fannie Willis is under attack, not least because she happens to be the daughter of a founder of the L.A. Black Panther Party, speaking of John Floyd. Hmm. And the state legislature in Atlanta is trying to shrink her jurisdiction and make it more difficult for her to bring cases. And that particular effort will probably reach a deafening crescendo in the next few months when she's expected to issue yet another indictment of Mr. Trump. But there's also the companion effort to remove legislators. Think of the Tennessee Three, uh, the uh, folks who were ousted from the legislature in Tennessee because of their vigor and pushing gun control. Think of what's happening out in Montana, where a trans legislator is in the process of being isolated and marginalized by a majority Republican legislature. So this is all very disturbing, and uh, the question is, what are we going to do about it?
0: Well, I guess that's one of the questions we try to answer on on the ground. I uh, like to leave that question open to to listeners to please, you know, write in and talk about the kinds of actions, the types of movements that you're involved in to, I don't know, fight back against this kind of really right-wing attack on, uh, in all, in many cases, elected officials, and in some of the cases, uh, just appointed people who are appointed by the public to do the work of the people?
1: Well, in terms of answering the provocative question that I posed, oh, I, I, hope, okay. <laughs> I hope to uh, answer that question and others when I come to Washington on June 3rd in order to launch the latest book I have published, speaking of revolting capital racism and radicalism in Washington DC, 1900 to 2000. This will be a major fundraiser for WPFW. And I hope to see all of our friends and comrades in the place.
0: Absolutely. And I look forward to not only the celebration of the book, but the kind of discussion that you just mentioned, because very often we, we put out the news we analyze the news and we, we kind of fall short in terms of our organizing, but we don't want to, we don't want to though. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that event and we're working furiously to make sure that it is packed and very successful. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. On April 28th and 29th, a forum was held at American University here in Washington, D.C., titled In Search of a New U.S. Policy for a New Latin America, Burying 200 Years of the Monroe Doctrine. And on the website for the forum, the organizers, Code Pink, write this. Ever since President James Monroe issued the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, the U.S. has considered Latin America its backyard. Now more than ever, it's time for Washington policymakers to reconsider this unfounded assumption. The vast majority of Latin Americans have always viewed with distaste this notion of being a backyard. From the outset of the 21st century, a sizable number of governments have vocally rejected U.S. domination more so than in the past." They have taken steps toward promoting Latin American unity while questioning the utility of the Organization of American States, OAS, whose headquarters are located in Washington and has historically been dominated by the United States. Journalist Juan Gonzalez gave a keynote address at the forum, and these are his remarks. He's introduced by Samantha Wary of Code Pink.
3: Today, we see a new world order emerging where traditional power structures are being challenged by new movements and ideologies. This is a time of change and turmoil, but it's also an opportunity for us to build a more just and equitable world. We must continue to stand up against oppression and fight for the rights of all people. I feel humbled and honored to be in the presence of so many luchadores, so many fighters in this room who have been in this struggle longer than I have been alive. One of those people is our keynote speaker, Juan Gonzalez, whose sheer determination and unyielding resilience is an inspiration. Juan Gonzalez has been fighting for what what is right from a young age while staying true to his identity and his roots. In fact, when in kindergarten, teachers suggested that he go by John instead of Juan. Juan knew he had to speak up, and so he did, boldly proclaiming that his name was Juan and always would be. From then on, he was unapologetic about who he was and unrelenting in his pursuit of justice. Through his involvement with Young Lords Party during the late 1960s and the National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights in the early 1980s, Juan discovered that he had the power not only to assert himself, but also to work with others to effect real change. Today, Juan continues to carry the lesson with him. He's an award-winning journalist, and investigative reporter, and author of many books, including the classic Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. He, ha- he has also been the co-host of Democracy Now! since it started in 1996. Please join me in welcoming our, co- our keynote speaker, Juan González.
2: It is an honor to be with you all today. To be part of this grand and growing hopefully alliance of people's organizations calling for an end to the monroe doctrine and for a new u.s policy toward latin america for more than 50 years i have been an activist a journalist and a chronicler of the evolution of both the latinx communities in the united states and of latin america's deeply troubled relationship with U.S. leaders. As someone who was born in Puerto Rico, the last major U.S. colony, but who has lived my entire life in the barrios of the East Coast, I've been acutely aware of the direct connection between Latinos in this country and the peoples of Latin America. There are today 62 million people of Latin American descent in the United States. That says the Census Bureau is actually of 2020. 18.7% of the population. It's actually 65.2 million, if you include the people of Puerto Rico, U.S. citizens since 1917, which the Census Bureau never does when counting U.S. Hispanics. That is an astounding number when you consider that a little more than 50 years ago, when I was a young radical member of the Young Lords Party, The Latinx population was just 9.1 million and represented a mere 4.5% of the population. So the first thing that we must grasp is that we are living through and witnessing an historic transformation of the very composition of the U.S. population. The main theme of my book Harvest of Empire when I wrote it nearly a quarter century ago is that the mushrooming migration from Latin America, Asia and Africa to the rich nations of the world can only be understood and ultimately will only be resolved by a reckoning with the legacy of the colonial empires of the US and other Western nations that they created in those regions during the previous two centuries. Quite simply, the modern immigration crisis result an unintended result, but one nonetheless, of the political upheavals and wealth inequalities those empires produced and sustained to this day. And what in short were those US policies toward Latin America specifically? Repeated military, as some people have mentioned already, that led to the economic dislocation and famine in key countries? Siphoning of an enormous share of the region's national wealth to El Norte, especially through Wall Street debt financing, political repression by Washington-sponsored and trained leaders and civil wars fueled by U.S. arms shipments, and aggressive labor recruitment by U.S. industries of Latin American workers to meet the needs of those industries. When President Monroe issued his doctrine in 1823, It was hailed by Latin American leaders. At last, they thought, U.S. neutrality toward their fight for independence from Spain would end. Gran Colombia's revolutionary president at the time, Francisco de Paula Santander, praised it as, quote, an act worthy of the classic land of liberty. With the English Navy and the United States as nominal protectors of Latin American independence, The new countries of the region at least managed to avert the catastrophes that befell much of Africa and Asia when the European powers divided those regions between them during the great colonial partitions of the late 19th century. But subsequent U.S. presidents turned the doctrine into a weapon of systematic oppression. Latin America, especially the Caribbean basin, became a U.S. dominion with North American adventurers repeatedly seeking to grab more territory. South America's great liberator, Simon Bolivar, grew so weary of the constant arrogance from our leaders in Washington that he declared before his death the United States seemed, quote, destined by Providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom. As thousands of US businessmen and adventurers headed south of the border, Latin America became the birthplace of the first great multinational U.S. corporations, enriching some of the country's most celebrated families. The factual record of how the entire region was pillaged is so ample, so sordid, that it almost defies comprehension. And I don't mean the simple outright seizure and annexation of Texas, and half of Mexico's territory during the Mexican-American War, territory that would later become California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and portions of Colorado and Utah. It was also the exploitation of Central and South America and the Caribbean islands. William Aspinwall, who made millions with his Panama Railroad in 1855, transporting North Americans across the isthmus from the East Coast to the California gold fields or Cornelius Vanderbilt's Nicaragua Transit Company, or the psychotic episode of Soldier of Fortune, William Walker, who during his two-year rule as a dictator of Nicaragua in the 1850s, reinstituted slavery, declared English an official language of Nicaragua, and was welcomed at the White House. More than 11,000 North Americans moved to Nicaragua during Walker's reign with three to 5,000 joining his occupation army. There was the infamous United Fruit Company, the first great U.S. multinational corporation, with plantations in Cuba, Honduras, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Colombia, its own railroads and shipping companies, the most powerful force in the region. There was the Havemeyer family, sugar trust that monopolized all sugar supplies to the United States with plantations in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic shipping all their produce to refineries in Brooklyn, Boston, and Baltimore under the name of Domino Sugar. There was the Guggenheim family with its massive investments in Mexican railways and the Hearst family with cattle ranches of more than a million acres in Northern Mexico. During the late 19th century reign of dictator Porfirio Diaz, Mexico was basically sold off to foreign investors. By 1910, more than 40,000 North Americans had settled in Mexico. 15,000 of them had gobbled up land and they controlled 130 million acres. 27% of the entire surface area of Mexico was owned by US citizens. Americans own 78% of Mexico's mines, 73% of its smelters, 58% of its oil, 68% of its rubber business. 1898, of course, was the climactic year for the creation of the U.S. colonial empires, has been stated with the seizure of Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, and Guam during the Spanish-American War. But the list of direct military interventions that ensued during the 20th century is mind-boggling. The sponsoring by Teddy Roosevelt and the US Navy of a whole country, Panama, just so Americans could secure land to build the Panama Canal. Interventions in Nicaragua five different times, including the war against Sandino liberation fighters from 1926 to 1933, and the CIA funding of the Contras in the 1980s. Mexico invaded three times, Honduras twice, Cuba three times after 1898 not counting the CIA-sponsored Bay of Pigs fiasco in 1961. Guatemala and the Arbenz coup in 54. Chile and Allende coup in 1973. The Dominican Republic invaded three times, including President Johnson's sending of thousands of US troops in 1965 to squash a people's revolt for democracy. Haiti in 1915 and again in 1994. Panama again in 1918, 1925, 1989. If Latin America had not been pillaged by U.S. capital since its independence, millions of desperate workers would not now be coming here in such numbers to reclaim a share of of that wealth. And, And if the United States is today the world's richest nation, it is in part because of the sweat and blood of copper workers of Chile, the tin miners of Bolivia, the fruit pickers of Guatemala and Honduras, the cane cutters of Cuba, the oil workers of Venezuela and Mexico, the pharmaceutical workers of Puerto Rico, the ranch hands of Costa Rica and Argentina, the West Indians who died building the Panama Canal, and the Panamanians who maintained it. But all that exploitation sparked a result the empire never expected. By World War II, with migration from Europe closed off, the U.S. initiated the Bracero Program, recruiting and contracting as many as 350,000 Mexican workers a year and tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans to work in U.S. factories and fields. The result of all that labor contracting and all the instability our foreign policy created has resulted in multiple Latino migration waves to the U.S., differing not only in their ethnic and racial characteristics, but in their classic origins. Throughout all of this, the Monroe Doctrine has been the excuse for U.S. meddling. It has never been renounced by the U.S. Even the Pope and the Vatican finally rejected this year the Doctrine of Discovery, the white supremacist theory that justified European domination of the native peoples of America, but our government still clings to Monroe's words, America under Washington control. Thankfully, most Latin American nations no longer follow dictates from the US. Recent elections in Mexico, Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, and Chile have brought progressive governments to virtually the entire region, and China's rise in the world economy has meant new loans and financing for the region's needs without the same strings that always came with loans from the Western banks. There are no wars, no major wars in Latin America today, no nuclear weapons, a growing commitment to tackle wealth inequality. The region has gone from a place of despair to one of hope. You don't hear any mention of this in the US commercial media's reporting on Latin American migrants, coverage that always seems to focus on the images of chaos and border, at a border overrun. So much of the immigration debate focuses more on heat than light, more on one-sided sloganeering than dispassionate discourse, more on stoking the worst emotions among the American people rather than an honest attempt to understand the roots of the problem than devise the most humane and sensible solutions. Throughout the administration of four presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden, congressional leaders have failed to agree on how to overhaul the U.S. immigration system. They failed to resolve not just the fate of unauthorized migrants within the country, but also to modernize outdated guest worker programs or to refashion processes for granting permanent visas and handling asylum seekers and refugees. They have repeatedly deadlocked on such an overhaul precisely because the stakes are so high in an increasingly multiracial nation. Any comprehensive immigration reform, after all, will determine who can legitimately become a U.S. citizen in the 21st century. It will reshape the the nation's voting population for decades to come and will alter the distribution of political and economic power at both the national and local level, and they know it. That's why they resist immigration reform. Our immigration crisis, however, is not unique. Ever since the end of World War II, the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America of the third world of the global south have been coming to the west. England doesn't know what to do about all the Pakistanis, Indians, and Jamaicans. France doesn't know what to do about all the Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans. Germany doesn't know what to do about all the Turks and Syrians, the Netherlands about all the Indonesians. And in the United States, our leaders have grappled for decades with what to do about all the Latin American and Caribbean peoples and increasingly Africans and Asians that have migrated here. The key thing to understand is that the migrations have come from the very countries those metropolitan powers once colonized or dominated. And in recent years, we've seen the heartbreaking images of boat people crossing the Mediterranean to get to Italy, Greece, and the Balkan states, with thousands perishing at sea in their attempts, but tens of thousands reaching Europe, many corralled into camps and detention centers. Where do these refugees come from? From Syria, from Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Countries where, during the past two decades, our own government's military interventions, occupations, and targeted bombings and assassinations have tragically led to greater violence and instability than previously existed. The sudden surge of people fleeing one country for another did not arise from thin air or from individual decisions made to simply seek a better life in another country. Rather, there are manifestations of profound flaws in the economic and political systems of our modern world. Much of it, I would submit to you, is the unintended harvest of past colonial empires and of a new stage of economic and political domination where the US, an empire in decline, is determined to use its military might to master the world, a rules-based order where Washington makes all the rules. But these migrations have been going on for so long now that they have reached critical mass, where they have begun to transform the actual composition of the receiving nations. Latinos in the US are in a unique position among all the modern migrant groups. We come from a region of the world that has not only provided the bulk of this country's new migrants for the past 50 years, some of us trace our heritage to families that were living on what is now the US before it was the US. And a growing number of Latino migrants trace their origins to the indigenous, the indigenous peoples of America or descendants from the enslaved Africans of the region. The enormous contributions of the Latin American diaspora to U.S. prosperity rarely gets acknowledged. It is critically important to extol those contributions when others try to disseminate stereotypes of Mexico and other Latin American nations sending only criminals and paupers. Even today, The hardest, most menial, and least appreciated work in the U.S. is performed by Latino migrants. Those who pick the fruits and vegetables that nourish us, who butcher the meat and poultry we consume, who tend our lawns and repair our roofs, who build our houses and haul our waste, who clean the hotels we use and the office buildings where we work, who wash the dishes and clear the tables in restaurants where we eat, who keep our universities clean and sparkling are invariably Latino. After 60 years of steady migration, the children of those Latin American migrants, most of them born or raised in this country, are on the cusp of transforming the United States. There are 3 million Latinx youth enrolled in American colleges and universities today. And the public school population is even bigger More than 50% of the children in Texas and California public schools are Latino. More than 25% in Illinois and New York. 15% to 17% in Georgia and North Carolina. Many of them have been involved with the Dreamers leading the movement to legalize not just undocumented youth but their parents and relatives as well. But Latino youth across the nation have said, but to other Issues as well, the quest for answers to the disappearances of the students of Ayotzinapa and to all the mass violence in Juarez and all of Mexico, to stopping the detention of migrant children and families at the border, ending police abuse, racial profiling and mass incarceration of black and Latino youth for minor offenses, winning a big jump in the minimum, in the minimum wage and paid sick leave for all who are employed. But there's much more to do, especially in the area of saving our planet from the ravages of climate change and achieving full equality for lesbians, gays, and transgender individuals. And many of you are involved in those causes as well. In 1969, when I was a young Latino activist, I helped found, as mentioned, the Young Lords, a radical Puerto Rican group. And later the National Congress of Puerto Rican Rights. The Lords along with the Brown Berets, Mecha, La Raza Party, August 29th Movement, Casa, had enormous influence on my generation despite arrests and beatings and persecution that we endured. Our activism opened these universities to black and brown students It achieved the creation of the first Puerto Rican Chicano and Latino Studies programs, the hiring of the first Latino professors, our free breakfast programs and those of our allies in the Black Panther Party uh, and our exposure of the ap- epidemic of lead-based paint in urban uh, tenements led to reforms that eliminated uh, lead-based paint. That summer of 1969, a, a young Puerto Rican poet and supporter of ours named Pedro Pietri recited for the first time at one of our sit-ins a new poem he had just finished writing. He called it Puerto Rican obituary. It is one of the great epic poems of the 20th century, and Pedro would go on to become internationally acclaimed for his work. Hearing him recited cemented my lifelong commitment to fighting for social justice. I want to share a few lines with you because it still speaks not just to Puerto Ricans or Latinos, but to every North American and Latin American of working-class origins." And this was the start of Pedro's poem. They worked. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They worked. They worked, they worked, and they died. They died broke. They died owing. They died never knowing what the front entrance of the first national city bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagros, Olga, Manuel, all died yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kin. All died waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management. All died dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night, screaming, mira, mira, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000. All died hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All died waiting, dreaming, and hating dead Puerto Ricans who never knew there were Puerto Ricans. Who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandment to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked skulls and communicate with their Latino souls. Not just the first few stanzas of this remarkable poem that awakened and inspired a generation of the Latin American diaspora. Pedro passed away in 2004 at the age of 59, but he lives in his timeless verse. It is up to us, but especially the young people of this country, to demand a new way an end to the empire whose evil deeds the Monroe Doctrine first sought to cloak in elegant words. There has been progress. Latin America is no longer the backyard of the empire. It is the front yard of a world movement for social justice and peace. From Mexico to Honduras, from Cuba to Venezuela and Nicaragua, from Colombia to Brazil and Chile, from Bolivia to Argentina, the governments and peoples of Latin America are charting their own future. Take Chile, for example, with one of the world's biggest reserves of lithium, the holy grail of electric batteries. President Rafael Boric announced this week that he will seek to nationalize the uh, lithium mining in his country and will involve Chile's indigenous groups in helping dis- to decide a humane way to develop this vital resource. His announcement sent tremors through many capitalist circles. But Latin America no longer feeds no longer fears the CIA, the IMF, and their own right-wing elites determined to live in a a multipolar world, to sell their goods and build alliances with whoever treats them with respect, whether it is be a European power, or Russia, or China, or the US. They're tired of Washington demanding obedience to its version of democracy and reacting only with sanctions, arrogance, and regime change to all who dare challenge its hegemony. We are here today to say those days are over. It's time the American people learned the truth about the U.S. role in Latin America. Time that Congress, the White House, and all Americans of goodwill demand an end, once and for all, to the heinous Monroe Doctrine and the ideology behind it. We will spend the rest of the day discussing ways to spread this message throughout the land to ordinary Americans and to their elected officials. So let's get to work. And as we used to say in The Young Lords, Pa'lante, siempre pa'lante, hasta la victoria. Thank you.
0: That was journalist Juan Gonzalez speaking April 29, 2023 at the Latin America and Caribbean Policy Forum in search of a new U.S. policy for a new Latin America burying 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. The forum was sponsored by Code Pink, Women for Peace, and was held at American University here in D.C., and that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Iverum. Special thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Keep Your Head to the Sky by Earth, Wind & Fire, Truth Don't Die by Femi Kuti, and our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Iveram. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.